0: Welcome to Push Black's Black History Year. I'm Jay, and in this episode, we're going to talk about gun ownership in the Black community. Our guest is Douglas Jefferson, the vice president of the National African American Gun Association. Much of the gun culture and gun ownership debate is driven by organizations outside the Black community. Push Black is here to provide an alternate voice, and Jefferson is someone we need to hear from. Black gun ownership is an issue we need to take seriously. Why? because it goes to our ability to enjoy the same liberty and equal protection under the law as everyone else. Look at what happened to Philando Castile, a brother who was pulled over by the police and followed the officer's orders. He was respectful. He informed the officer that he had a license to carry a firearm. He reached for his driver's license as requested by the officer. After all this, within only 74 seconds— Philando Castile was shot and killed by a police officer frightened by nothing more than the sight of black skin. Push black members mobilized in the face of this tragedy. Because guess what? The Second Amendment isn't just the Second Amendment for white people. Liberty, freedom from tyranny, and equal protection under the law isn't just for others. It's for us, too.
1: thanks for being here, man. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Glad to be
0: invited. Glad to have this conversation with you guys today. For sure. So uh, this is a question we ask everyone depending on what they speak about. So I'd like to hear your perspective on this in the context of black gun ownership. What does black liberation look like to your organization? So black liberation to us looks like the black community being able to
1: assert themselves as fully fledged citizens of these United States with all the rights and privileges due to that citizenship and all debts owed to that community paid in full. We have a lot of rights on paper that are great, that our ancestors have fought for, bled for, died for. But unfortunately today we still don't have all those rights respected. And so it's great to, you know, the, the first step being said is having it on paper, but we, we need to continue this work so that they're actually respected. So black
0: liberation looks like that for me. So there are gun rights, advocacy groups that already exist, NRA being the most well-known, what makes your organization different? So the, the name of the organization that I'm here representing
1: is the National African American Gun Association. So NAAGA or NAGA, as some folks will call it. It is the most unique uh, brotherhood and sisterhood of uh, gun owners uh, in the United States, in the world, I dare say. We're definitely the largest uh, black gun organization uh, in the US and in the world at this time. And our goal is to promote responsible farm ownership amongst the African American community by teaching the safety of farm uh, ownership. So, making sure that you are following those uh, basic rules of uh, farm safety and making sure that you are going out, you're getting training, proper training the farms and knowing what the laws are surrounding gun ownership. But the bedrock of that is knowing the history of black people and farms in this country, that black tradition of arms that goes back starting from the
0: moment our enslaved ancestors were brought over here in 1619 all the way up to present day. Great. Thank you. So uh, speak a little more about what makes you all different than the other organizations that exist. Sure. So we are owned, operated,
1: uh, target towards the African-American community. That, that's not to say that we don't want good things for other communities, but we think that there needs to be someone from our community speaking specifically for us on the issue of farms because it's a very nuanced conversation being that our community, the African-American community, uh, has a very different history in this country than anyone else. We're the only community that was brought here forcefully. We didn't volunteer to come to these United States. And because of that, that has a, a unique struggle that is attached to our community, and with that stroke unique views on how we should approach being citizens in this country and uh, utilizing the rights that are granted to us by that citizenship. You yourself, how did you get into gun ownership? Uh, So my story starts uh, as a little kid. So my grandfather, uh, who's 90 years old today, uh, he lives in rural Georgia, and even to this day, uh, keeps a shotgun by his bed. And I remember I was eight or nine years old and, you know, running around the house playing with my cousins and, you know, go by grandpa's room and I see, oh, there's like a gun. And, you know, of course, by that age, you know, you know what a, a gun is. You've, you know, probably seen on TV, you know, seen in uh, media and whatnot. But I always kept that in the back of my mind. And as I grew up and uh, started, you know, working professionally and then uh, extracurricularly uh, outside of work, some of the folks that I around, they were uh, members of the military And so uh, you're talking with them and you talk about everything, sports, talk about video games, talk about life. And they talk about guns, but I was always really quiet. And they said, well, don't you own a gun? I said, well, no. It's like, have you ever shot a gun? I said, well, no. They said, well, why not? I didn't really have a good answer for that. I was like, I I don't know. I just never really thought about it. So uh, the next point that I had available to me to to go to range when I was off on the weekend, I went, rented a gun, uh, shot it, and I really, really started to like it. Being that I'm a bookworm, I like to know anything and everything about what I do, particularly if, uh, if it's, if it's going to be a hobby or something, I think I'm going to put a lot of time into. So I started looking for what has been the involvement of Black people in farms, because, you know, you see a lot of stuff on TV and media, but that's not necessarily factual or really telling you the whole story of what's going on. And so as I started reading and researching, I was just blown away with how deep that history was and how connected the rights to own firearms and use them to protect yourself and community were so integral to the African-American community in particular, gaining and having rights that they had respected in this country. So that really, really connected with me on a very deep and personal level. And it really fueled my advocacy with this organization and just my
0: advocacy in general for African-Americans to be responsible gun owners. What positive impact could increased firearm ownership have in the black community? So I think one of the positive impacts is that it promotes a
1: level of maturity and a level of responsibility that you don't necessarily get from other walks of life. Definitely when you become a gun owner, there's a certain way that you have to move through the world that you may not necessarily have had to move through the world before. You definitely have to become a more thoughtful person, and that's not to say that African-Americans don't possess all those qualities already or aren't capable of having those qualities. But it's just something unique about farms ownership that really forces one to, to have that. For instance, um, in the eyes of the law, as a responsible gun owner, you're seen as the, the bigger person, the adult in the room. And so when it comes to dealing with conflict, it's expected that you as a gun owner are going to do everything in your power to remove yourself from the conflict and to avoid any type of altercation. Additionally, with that That ownership piece and the way we present it through our organization, we connect it with the history of that black tradition of arms. So we show African-American people that they're not doing anything new or different. This is something that's very common and there's a very deep historical context to that ownership and that usage of the firearms to support positive community ideals such as protection and security. But if we look at historically what has been more true for the African-American community than any other community, the Second Amendment has been there to bridge that gap when the government wouldn't be there to protect us because of incompetence, because of moral cowardice, because of outright malice towards African-Americans in our community. And so without that Second Amendment, without that, that, that gun ownership through that responsible, moral and ethical lens that is the black initiative of arms, we wouldn't be able to have a lot of rights, particularly that right to vote that we cherish so much in our community and that we hold up as a
0: responsibility to all of us. That's interesting because similar to other types of life changes or habit changes, if you are a firearm owner, that'll take you to a level where you're moving through the world differently and you are making different positive changes in your life between how you present yourself and how you take responsibility for yourself and those around you, right?
1: Absolutely. And it also makes you uh, more likely to be civically engaged. If you just look across the country, just at gun owners in general, gun owners tend to be some of the most civically engaged individuals in communities because they see how beneficial that right is to being able to protect themselves and protect their families. So conversely, if we look at the African-American community, with that involvement of of once we get you involved in responsible gun ownership, we use that sort of as, as a gateway to have conversations about not just gun rights, but all rights, because all the amendments, all the rights, all the legal protections that you have, they're important. You can't get rid of one without affecting others. And so we we use the story of the Black Church Orange, particularly when we look at the nineteen sixties and seventies during the civil rights movement, and how gun ownership was integral to that community push to end Jim Crow segregation and to gain enfranchisement through the vote.
0: That's amazing the framing of how gun ownership pushes people to be more civically engaged. And I think that speaks to a couple values that Push Black tries to promote as far as self-reliance and self-determination. Like, if you have this personal responsibility of being a firearm owner and you are taking responsibility for your environment around you, you're not necessarily having to look towards other folks to respond if something needs to be done, which I think is something that has been to us like we need to look outside ourselves for people to help and support us would you agree with that so i I'd agree to a point uh, I, I definitely think that you have to be able
1: to help yourself before you can ask others to help you or at least you have to be putting forth good faith effort in helping yourself but i but I think we have to always be open to good faith allyship and, and I think historically there's been a lot of bad faith allyship when it comes to other communities and allying with the African-American community. That is to say, they talk a very good game, but when the chips are down and action is needed, they're not necessarily as responsive as we would be
0: when it comes to supporting their communities. So let's get into the history of Black folks and gun control, or how you put it, the... Black tradition of arms. I love that, the Black tradition of arms. So can you speak to how we've been restricted from gun ownership in the past and the present as a people. The history of gun control
1: is a, a history of racism. To say it more nuanced, the history of gun control is a history of racist enforcement of that gun control. So if you look at some of the first laws that were on the books to restrict firearms ownership, they were specifically targeted towards black people. In fact, in the laws, it was saying specifically black people cannot own firearms or black people cannot handle farms unless under the control of a white individual. So we move from that space into more nuanced and coded language. So we say, well, you cannot own certain types of farms, particularly farms that cost very little. Well, we know that there can be financial challenges within the African-American community. So if you start restricting The sale of firearms that cost a low amount of money, then you're going to disproportionately impact those that don't have a lot of money to spend on protection. And that tends to be the African-American community. You see laws that say, well, within urban cities, urban areas where there's issues of crime, well, we're going to restrict the uh, ownership of firearms in those areas. Well, once again, if you look at who lives in urbanized areas, there are a lot of very large African-American community that lives there and end up being affected disproportionately. The issue with those such laws like that is when you're restricting firearms, particularly when you're trying to do it to curb some sort of crime, if you're looking at the African-American community, if you show me an African-American community where there's some type of Violent crime issue, a high rate of violent crime. I can show you a community where there's a much longer history of failed public policy to support that community, right? So we'll see a community that has schools that are underfunded, right? They don't have proper textbooks. They don't have proper heating and air. They've got asbestos in the walls. We, we see a, a community, I can show you a community that has uh, underfunded infrastructure. So potholes in the streets, street lights that are out, you know, lead in the water, right? Which is a neurotoxin, which damages the mind. I can show you a community that has lack of uh, access to non-predatory capital. So you don't have traditional banking options. You don't have lenders that are going to provide loans to start businesses, to to send children to school, to buy homes, right? You only have check cashing spots that high, you know charge uh you know horrendous interest rates. You have uh, a community that often you don't have a police force that's accountable to that community. So whenever there's a police interaction that goes badly, there's seems to be a lack of care of engaging that community and really finding out why, what happened with that interaction and punishing the officer if they were in the wrong. So you can't tell me that guns are creating and sustaining these issues when every other structure in that community that would, would create a healthy environment for folks is, is not in place. Because if we look at the root word of gun violence, a gun it's violence. And we know just from the science that violence is cycles, right? It's not that one day someone, you know, is okay and the next day they, they go out and they're going to, to, to harm someone in some sort of violent manner. We know that it is a process and it is, it is created by an ecology that people live within. So these ecologically toxic environments that African-American communities are subjected to, that's creating and sustaining these cycles of violence that we see. Whether they're talking about homicide or talking about suicide, which have very two very different sets of causes. So I say all of that to say when you look at gun control, it's the red herring, it's the distraction that's put out there to allow people not to deal with these other much more complex issues that are gonna have pay much greater dividends to solving whatever issue that you're talking about within the community.
0: For sure. So it's like they're trying to put a bandaid on a problem, like on a deep wound, instead of, you know, stitching it up and cleaning an infection and all that type of stuff. Correct. As far as I know, there's not a correlation between legal gun ownership in the black community and homicide rates, right? Could you speak to sort of that nuance between legal ownership and how criminal behavior is usually done with illegal firearms? I think that, that idea sort of gets swept under the rug.
1: If we're talking about Uh, Just legal gun owners as a group in this country, they have some of the lowest rates of involvement with any type of law breaking. So there have been a couple of studies that have been put out, particularly there's one that came out in Texas a few years back that showed how uh, those that were concealed carry card holders had some of the lowest rates of any group in Texas of of breaking the law. Now, obviously, that's only one state, but I, I think we could extrapolate that pretty generally across the spectrum. As far as gun owners are concerned, if you sit down and speak to gun owners, the laws are very much at the front of their minds. So gun owners, legal gunners, they don't they don't want to break the law. Their whole premise of gun ownership is because they're worried about other people that are going to break the law and try to bring some sort of illegal, unethical, immoral violence against them and their families. We have challenges that we face as a community that other communities don't have to face. We look at some of the best that our has produce, such as Martin Luther King. And even though he lived in a different time than we do today, even when he went to try to buy, get a firearm and get a permit so that he could own a farm, protect his family, he was denied getting that permit, right? So Mr. Martin Luther King, you know, the the patron saint of nonviolent activism, was not able to get a farm to defend his family, where, you know, if anyone, you know, you're going to put up there as the picture-perfect example of a responsible gun owner. And he was told, no, he can't. Now, obviously, that was under a Jim Crow South situation, but we still have these situations today. We had a gentleman a couple of years ago, lived in California. He was an African-American gentleman, older gentleman, worked, been very successful as a doctor, was retired, living with his wife. The town that he lived in, he was being threatened by white racist skinheads. Like, with all the the, the neo-Nazi tattoos, the whole nine, like, the idea, the picture in your head that people have when they think of the racist white supremacist individual. Those people were threatening him and his wife. He said, all right, I'm getting a firearm to make sure that I can protect myself if something happens. He was denied his permit. The reason why was they said he didn't have good reason to own a firearm. Wow. So think about that. He's literally going to the police. He's saying that I have literally had on multiple occasions, white supremacists threaten me with great bodily harm and death, threaten my wife with great bodily harm and death. And yet that was not a good enough reason for him to be granted a gun permit so they can own a farm. So he's, he's trying to follow the law. Right. And so I know I've kind of gone around the block with that answer, but it's 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 very it's just a very complex, very nuanced conversation we have to continue to have. And we, we as gun owners have to do our part, one, by, you know, being active uh, in that legal structure of uh, making sure that the laws do represent us and, and, and protect us in our communities. But also we have to do our part as far as making sure that uh, we can, you know, stopping uh, the the illegal flow of firearms, because if we know that firearms are being stolen from our homes or cars and things, we need to make sure that we properly secure them, Uh, which goes into one of the things that we're doing. We're about to release a series of uh, public service announcements that speak to properly
0: securing your firearm against criminal actors. So let's get into the history a little more. You mentioned Dr. King applying for a concealed care license, something I just recently learned about, which is an amazing thing that I think has also been swept under the rug in history. Could you speak to some other incidents or figures in Black history that stand out in your mind? So we have uh, individuals such as Ida B. Wells. Uh,
1: Ida B. Wells, she's, she's very well known for her anti-lynching advocacy during the turn of the century, going from the uh, 1890s into early 1900s. She is uh, quoted off saying a Winchester rifle has a place in every Black home because she highlighted incidents where lynchings were only near lynchings because of Black people that were armed and ready to defend themselves against a the lynch mob. Now, if we look at the rifle that she was talking about, the Winchester rifle, it was the AR-15 of its day. So she advocated the use of the farm, because if you look at these pictures of the lynch mobs, this, this wasn't just like one or two people. I mean, we're talking tens, dozens, hundreds, thousands in some cases of people that showed up to see a Black person hung from a tree. So she was very adamant on Black people owning farms to protect themselves. Another person that's part of that Black tradition of Arms is W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, he's known as a scholar, as an intellectual, right? He's known as pretty much the founder of the field of sociology. He was one of the first African-Americans to use the scientific method to empirically disprove many of the racist tropes and assumptions that white scientists of the day were claiming that were true of Black people. And he used the same scientific method that they said was the bar of how science was conducted to disprove those things, right? And in September of 1906 in Atlanta, Georgia, when he was teaching at Atlanta University, there was a anti-black riot that went on. So you had white people that were upset because black people were starting to have businesses, starting to own homes, starting to be successful. And there were white folks that thought that they shouldn't have this. So they started doing what we've seen in many instances. Uh, They started shooting, raping, killing, stealing. W.E.B. Du Bois, he bought a shotgun and he sat on the front steps of North Hall of the Atlanta University Center, ready to defend himself, his wife, who was living on campus with him at the time, and his students, if those white mobs had come onto the university campus. Right. So he was very much a scholar, but he knew the importance of owning farms for protection to make sure that you could defend yourself and your family. Another person, one of my personal favorites and who we within our organization call him the godfather of black armed self-defense, Robert F. Williams. He was the NAAC president out of uh, North Carolina in the 1960s. And he's very famous for saying a line that is not very controversial or, uh, today, but it was extremely controversial then. And what he said was, uh, he said this at, after the uh, ending of a rape trial. There was a white man who had raped a, a black woman who was in his community. They organized to pressure the local government to arrest that man and take him to trial. And he said, we're going to put our, you know, we're going to put our faith, you know, in this justice system and wait, you know, for it to deliver uh, a guilty verdict. It did not deliver a guilty verdict, as was too often the case during that time. And so, I mean, they were very upset and they said, like, well, what are we supposed to do if, you know, we can't put our faith in the government that they're going to, to protect us? And Robert F. Williams said, like, well, if the government is not going to protect us from violent, illegal, immoral terrorism, then we are going to protect ourselves. That is to say." If you come with illegal, immoral violence to our community, to commit it against our community, we will respond with lethal force to defend ourselves. And that was very controversial at the time for a black man to say that he would defend himself against the violence of a white man. So he actually formed a group called the Black Armed Guard, and they went and protected many members of the community and even protected freedom riders that came through to nonviolently protest the government to bring down Jim Crow segregation and to enfranchise African American people. He actually was able to get the uh, arms for the Black Arm Guard by a forming a gun club with the same title. And he actually did that through applying to the NRA. Another individual that we have to talk about, Dr. Ossian Sweet. So he was a doctor out of Detroit, lived with his wife. They were one of the first people to desegregate one of the uh, segregated Detroit neighborhoods, bought a house in the white neighborhood, when they were finally able to get around the redlining laws and buy a home. The white community did not like that. They were very upset that there was this black man and woman that were living in their myth. So they terrorized him day in and day out. They would call him names. They would call his wife names. They would, you know, threaten him. And this happened, you know, this kind of built up over a period of months. So... Finally, one day a mob came to his house with the intent on breaking on his house and probably, you know, killing him and his wife. He called the police. The police showed up, but they just stood by and watched. They didn't do anything to stop the mob. And so finally when there was one the guy who was bold enough to come up to his front door and enter, when that man busted into Dr. Sweet's front door, he received a couple of thirty eight slugs to the chest because Dr. Ossian Sweet was asserting his second amendment right to defend himself and his wife, where he had called on the government, the authorities to defend him, protect him, and they refused to. So he took matters into his own hands as far as his right as a human being and as a citizen of the East United States and defended himself. So at that point, that's when the police got involved and broke up the mob. And it wasn't because there was a black man and woman that were threatened, but because there was a
0: white person that was hurt. So today, do you think those type of threats still exist in some way as far as outside terroristic threats towards our community. We've seen incidences like the shooting at Emanuel AME Church five years ago. There's more white nationalist sentiment in the public sphere. You know, not to say this is new, but it's something that is seems more public than in previous years. Are these threats similar to what you just described that we need to be on the lookout for? Absolutely. So
1: one thing I always tell people if I'm having a conversation without the, the civil rights, and they they ask, well, They say, well, that was so long ago. Why are we worried about that now? Well, one thing I tell them is that, like, that's within living memory. It wasn't really that long ago. I mean, I can talk to my parents. They can remember going to segregated schools growing up. You know, I can talk to my grandfather. He can tell me about coming home at night and hiding in the ditch because they're night riders running around Georgia, right, looking to hang black folks from trees. So this is within living memory. So these folks, they're still, many of them are still living. And, of course, they're they're humans like anyone else. They're going to have relationships. They're going to get married. They're going to have children you know those ideas didn't just die so they're passing those ideas on so there are people that are much younger than them that still have those same toxic ideas about the african american community and about white supremacy and so since those ideas still exist since those people that ascribe to those ideas still exist and they still believe in committing violence against african americans just because we are african americans then yes i truly believe we 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 need to own firearms to protect ourselves and protect our community. And we need to own the firearms that we're likely to encounter. So, and that's not just handguns, that's shotguns, that's rifles, right? These individuals will have those type of firearms and we need to have that same type of access to firearms so that we can defend ourselves against that. And we can point out instances such as, like you said, the Emmanuel AME church shooting, where we had a a white supremacist terrorist walk into a church full of African Americans. And just murder them. So it's definitely a very real threat that's out there. So we need to make sure that we, we, we protect ourselves, that we invest in all of the rights, not just, you know, the right of free speech, not just the right to protest, not just the, you know, all the other rights, you know, the right to vote. Uh, the Second Amendment right is very crucial to that because going back to that 1960s and 70s era, you couldn't have had those massive nonviolent protests across the South without black people that were willing to own firearms and use them to protect themselves and their communities because once the march is over and the sun goes down and the cameras go away the night riders come out and they're coming to that black community because they're going to make an example of someone Mm -hmm. and so you needed people that would stand up with armed force to defend those marchers so that the very next day they could get up and go back out in the street and go back and demand that the government and society respect them enfranchise them and treat them Like every other U.S. citizen ought to be
0: treated in this country. So you mentioned media imagery of black folks with guns and sort of criminality aspect. And then you have the, you know, when white folks are presented, it's more like a a good old boy, you know, American type thing. Why do you think these perceptions exist and, you know, what function do they serve? I think the
1: perceptions uh, exists because of the the media that you see out there it it goes back to how historically African Americans have been portrayed as being criminal, being lazy, being shiftless. those stereotypes have never gone away they've just changed in how they manifest and it's always a challenge to overturn those perceptions just because like they're they're so prevalent in the public and unfortunately, you have a lot there are african Americans that do subscribe to those perceptions, right? I've I've had conversations with them and they see any Black person that owns a, a farm, like, well, you must be a criminal actor, you must be a bad guy. I think also with the, the perceptions when you talk about how white people are portrayed with farms versus Black people, well, that goes to there's a very, in, in white communities, it's a much more open conversation about gun culture than there is in the Black community. What our organization has done to allow people to, come out of the proverbial safe, as it were. So they're able to have conversations with family and friends that they weren't able to have previously about firearms and talk about it from a place of knowledge after spending time with the organization and learning that history. We get a number of emails, uh, letters, even, you know, in-person conversations with new members that come to the organization where they tell us how it's been really helpful knowing that history and being able to connect that because, you know, it it destigmatizes gun ownership, right? If you can talk about some of your greatest heroes and heroines supporting the Second Amendment right, it makes it much easier to have that conversation Mm. with family and friends.
0: That's amazing because white folks have that, right? All throughout history, they have not been afraid to stand up for their human rights using that type of action. Even in the media with the cowboy shows and all that type of stuff, they're heroes. They're running around shooting up non-white people and being praised for it. So, You're saying if we are able to see ourselves in a similar faction, but not necessarily just randomly going out and using violence, but this Black tradition of arms is a a legacy, something that we can embrace from a rational and emotional approach and really be part of. And and you're saying that helps get people into the door a lot of times.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's been the bedrock of our success is being able to connect people with that history. If if you look in... The African-American community, we hold our elders and our ancestors in very, very high regard. And being able to connect those ideas in a real fashion, not in some twisted or, you know, fashion of having like an agenda that's not in the interest of the African-American community, but, but in a real way, connect those heroes and heroines to that honorable moral and ethical usage of firearms for protection of the community, it really reaches a lot of people. It really puts firearms ownership in a light that many people have never seen it in literally in their entire
0: lives. Recently, in the past couple of years, we had the incident with Philando Castile. Your organization spoke out on that. Could you give the audience just a brief reminder of what that situation was and why you chose to speak out? Absolutely. So the
1: situation Philando Castile... He was a, a young man, upstanding individual, living in Minnesota, pulled over by a police officer. It was for a traffic stop. It was not for any, any type of serious infraction. Uh, but he disclosed to the officer, let him know, hey, I, you know, I'm legally carrying a firearm on me. So the, the officer told him, you know, hey, well, don't reach for it. And Flannel said, no, I'm, I'm not reaching for it because he had been asked, previous the officer, to, to get his license and registration continues to try to get the license registration. The officer's like, don't reach for it. Don't reach. He's like, I'm not reaching for my gun. And of course, the officer murders him on the spot. And we, we had to speak out on that because he was so representative of so many of, um, so many members of our community and of our organization. I mean, he was a licensed gun owner. Uh, so it means he didn't have any felonies. He didn't, uh, he didn't have any evictions of misdemeanor, domestic violence or felony domestic violence. I mean, he was a good upstanding citizen, worked in school, was beloved by his community. And he was shot because of a perception that he was somehow dangerous because he was a black man armed with a legally armed firearm. And so we had to speak out on that and, and make sure that the community knew that we saw that it wasn't right and we wanted justice to be served and that officer to be held accountable because there's no reason that Philando
0: shouldn't be with us here today. So on social media, I saw mixed reactions, which is confusing to me. From our community, some folks use this to say, you know, this is an example of why black folks shouldn't carry guns. Did you see anything like that? And what are your what are your response to that? So yes, I, I did see some responses such as that,
1: and my response to those type of reactions is that you know, rights not exercised are rights lost, or essentially lost. We would never say that about the right to vote, right? There, there are people, black people, were literally they were burned, castrated, hung from trees. Drag behind trucks, had the unborn children cut from the bellies of their mothers. Like, these were things that were done when Black people attempted to vote. And so we would never tell a Black person, well, you shouldn't vote because that, that happened to somebody or, sh- or could have happened to you. No, that's insane. That is a tool that you have as an American citizen to make sure that your voice is heard, that you can have a say in what your government does and does not do. The Second Amendment is a tool for you to protect yourselves, from those that want to do all those things to you because you want to vote. And so while I understand everyone wants to try to to avoid risk, but as African-American, there is no running away from this fight, from this struggle. It is here. As long as you are going to live in this country, it is a fight that you have to contend with. And so you can decide that you are going to be victimized that by those that want to victimize you, or you can start like, no, I'm going to fight back and I'm going to use all the tools available to me in the eyes of the law to do so. And one of those tools is the Second Amendment because it, you know, it does you no good if to vote or to attempt to vote if you can't defend yourself in the middle of the night when someone breaks into your house, whether it be a criminal actor or a white supremacist terrorist to, to harm and kill you,
0: right? your Your vote means nothing at that point. From my understanding, when the Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment was being debated and discussed. Some of the arguments included this idea that citizens should have this right in order to protect themselves from a tyrannical government. In my opinion, it seems that black folks in America have been the biggest victims of government tyranny. And so that's one reason I think it makes sense to embrace this and and fight for this right. Would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely, uh, that, that that's something that uh, I I I say all the time. You know, of any community in this country, we are the community that has the most experience with tyrannical government, with being on the damaging end of tyrannical government, and so we certainly should not want to give up that Second Amendment right or restrict it, given that history, because it's already shown that it can happen once; it can happen again, right? And now it's our job to use all of our tools outside of the Second Amendment to make sure it doesn't happen. But the Second Amendment is also there because it never happens. Like, okay, they're gonna just march the military out and come door to door. No, it's, it's it's gonna manifest itself as the type of terrorist acts that are committed against the community that we see today and that they've been committed in
0: the past. So we have to make sure that we are prepared for that. Yeah. So, are there any new laws or legislations being proposed that you think? makes sense as far as gun control rights, or would you rather, your organization, rather not see any new restrictions come into place?
1: So I'll put it this way. When it comes to gun control, we're willing to sit down with anyone at the table. However, what you have to bring something meaningful to the table. And what I mean by that is, when I talked about how violence is a cycle, right, how it's ecological in nature, show me first your good faith honest efforts where you have pushed policy to address those ecological issues first. Don't come here saying like, hey, we just need to restrict guns because we know that doesn't work. So then I have to ask you, what are you doing on the ecology, right? Because if we look at something like suicides, all right, most of when they say gun deaths, like 60% plus of gun deaths are suicides, right? So you only need one gun and one bullet to do that, right? Gun control isn't going to fix that. If we look at who's affected by that, suicide victims tend to be middle-aged people, middle-aged men particularly. So that doesn't sound like a gun control problem. That sounds like a men's health problem. Uh, if you look at uh, gun violence in the African-American community and you look at who is committed to a violence, it's a you know, single-digit percentage of individuals that are responsible for the vast majority of that gun violence in the community. Often we know who those individuals are. Because there have been studies that show that violence often can spread in a virus like way they've run models that show its spread is 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 similar to what you would see like for a contagious disease so if it is in your circle, just like if you know we were sitting here and then I happened to commit like some terrible violent act, and we were really you know you knew me because I'm in that circle of people that are close to you, you're more likely to be a perpetrator or victim of that violence because of how communities work, right? And that's not a black people thing or white people thing. That's just, that's just people. So if we're looking at that and we see that, that's what the science is saying. Where are interventions that are focusing on that? Why is the only thing that's rolled out is gun control? And I think the only reason it's rolled out is because people want to distract from doing that hard work,
0: that hard policy work of addressing those ecological issues. Thank you. Final question. So Push Black, uh, majority of the stories we send out our Black history stories. and The reason for that is we know that history is written by the winners, and we've been losing for a long time. Now we're trying to take that back, reclaim it, and tell stories that we think our community can learn from and build on. One thing we see regarding this issue is that with with Black history and the civil rights movement specifically, you have this idea of nonviolence propped up in a way that alternatives, such as armed self-defense... Um, are not, and they're even demonized. I'm interested in knowing, why do you think that one is propped up over the other?
1: Well, I I think because it's easier to tell just a straight story versus a nuanced one. The civil rights story of nonviolent protests is a very simple story to get across, just for the layman, and get across quickly. If you start sort of muddying the water, so to speak, with the use of armed self-defense in there, it's, it's a much more nuanced conversation. But you couldn't have had one without the other. It was a combination of you know, the disruption of the nonviolent uh, civil rights movement combined with the fact that overnight black people are not going to let you come to their
0: neighborhoods and kill them. You had to have both. Douglas Jefferson, thank you so much, my brother. This has been great. Like that. We're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. Black History Year is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest non black media company. Production support from Michael L. Sesser and Lemina House. Obviously, the power that comes from knowing our history is important to you. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take this into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out. Peace.